a delight to welcome first to speak to us Mike Wooldridge from the BBC whom I first got to know when, um, to my admiration, he really did come down to the grassroots and uh, recorded peace monitors at work in a South African township in 1993, two or three. And Mike, uh, thank you for your commitment to the whole picture and we look forward to your talk. much indeed. Uh, forgive the uh, Billingham bag uh, that I brought it up onto the platform with me, uh, one of those journalistic cliches I think they are. But uh, it's been with me now for more than 20 years of reporting war and peace, so it seemed to be appropriate to have it uh, with me today. Uh, scenes from the front line. Uh, the first conflict I found myself uh, reporting on at first hand was Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982. And looking back on it, I think I was uh, pretty unprepared for the experience in every way. A cameraman and a sound recordist offered me a place in their hired car and we used it to weave around the front line as it moved up through southern Lebanon towards Beirut. Witnessing tanks and other armoured vehicles on the move and sometimes at uncomfortably close quarters, exchanges of fire. Coming across a destroyed tank with a dead soldier alongside it, Syrian I believe he was, and the first war casualty I'd ever seen in my life. Watching Israeli fighter aircraft wheeling overhead and searching out potential targets, and interviewing refugees and other civilians caught up in it all. I spent some three weeks in Beirut itself, surrounded by bombed out buildings, crisscrossing front lines within the factionally divided city, the fighting still going on, with the PLO leader Yasser Arafat eventually leaving by sea for Tunisia amid a hail of gunfire, the defiantly celebratory gunfire of his supporters this time. Now I describe uh, those events not with any sense of bravado, indeed I remember being fairly anxious most of the time and very anxious sometimes, but to give you a, a picture of the assault on the senses when you are a witness to warfare, something which some of you here will know much better than me, uh, but others of you will not have experienced perhaps. And I found that in reporting that first conflict, the overwhelming challenge was making some sort of sense of what I was seeing, trying to interpret what was happening overall and why it was happening. I was, of course, seeing and reporting just snapshots of the war and snatch conversations mostly. And I remember then wanting to avoid the obvious risk of dehumanizing the coverage so focusing on troop and aircraft movements, on tactics and weaponry, uh, that I would fail to convey very much at all of the impact on the civilian population and as far as I could on those doing the fighting as well. So to another country, Uganda, and to other front lines, more blurred this time. It's the mid-1980s, and the man who's been the president of Uganda now for the past 25 years, Yoweri Museveni, was then still fighting the Bush War that was eventually to lead him to power. I was on a reporting trip in the capital, Kampala, and went to see an aid worker called Cole Dodge, an aid worker with a pilot's license and an enthusiasm for bold and unconventional initiatives. 
He told me he wanted to get some medicines to people in an area of the west of Uganda held by Yoweri Museveni's rebel forces, and hopefully to open up something of a corridor for delivering humanitarian supplies across the front line. More than that, he said he was going to fly the medicines there himself that afternoon in a small plane, and he proposed that I go with him and do a report on the mission for the BBC when we got back. I'm not sure that if we get back, crossed my mind, but uh, perhaps it should have done. I was up for it, of course, and if Cole had in the back of his mind uh, that a report on the BBC World Service, heard of course in Uganda, might possibly help in getting the government and the rebels to allow him to continue his maverick initiative, well, so be it. The rebels were certainly wary, I remember, when we landed in Kasese in the West, and especially so when I got out of the plane with my tape recorder. The medicines were duly handed over to be given to civilians needing them, and I did my interviews. We flew back across the contested territory, and if I remember rightly, the greatest threat came in trying to fly the small plane around a menacing thunderstorm, and I did my report. Now, it wasn't long after this that uh, events overtook any need for a sustained humanitarian corridor to the west, and Mr. Museveni and his forces swept into Kampala with the legendary cameraman Mohammed Amin, his sound recordist Mohammed Shafi, and me not far behind them, in the back of a Toyota pickup together with maybe seven or eight young fighters who were little taller than their guns, speeding past the wreckage of war along the road. At Uganda, not called the Pearl of Africa by Winston Churchill for nothing, had already gone through so many upheavals, and there were more to come as Mr. now President Museveni sought to consolidate his rule, presenting further challenges in the reporting of conflict. A woman called Alice Lequena led a rebellion from the north, a ragtag army that was the forerunner of the infamous Lord's Resistance Army. Her fighters would smear themselves with an oil or potion that she told them would prevent the bullets of the government soldiers killing them. We saw the casualties of the conflict, including her fighters. But somehow, she made it down the eastern side of Uganda to an area close to a key army barracks and not far from Uganda's second largest town, Jinja. Three journalist colleagues and I felt we should try to find her and interview her. It proved to be surprisingly easy. Almost the first villagers we asked told us she was in a nearby banana grove with some of her followers. When we met her, she told us that she'd had a vision in which God had instructed her to capture Kampala. Her strange armed venture was to come to an end not long afterwards. And our luck ran out very shortly after we found and interviewed her. We left our car at the side of a track to walk to the banana grove, and soon after we returned to it and started back towards the main road, we were stopped and surrounded by government troops and accused of consorting with the rebels. And it was significantly more difficult to negotiate our way out of that than it had been to meet Alice Laquena. Now, such conflicts, of course, are very different in nature from the Lebanon War I talked about at the start, or the more recent conventional wars that I'll come on to in a moment. But I've seen the pervasive sense of insecurity that can afflict many communities, communities in these simmering conflicts and have a devastating impact. I went back about five years ago to the same area of southern Uganda where we found Alice Lequena, this time to do a report for Newsnight. 
at random. We stopped at a family compound and wound up spending the whole morning talking with them about their lives and how they made ends meet. It was very hard to see how they did. The middle generation of the family had been lost to AIDS. The elderly grandparents were looking after all the children and the chamber or plot for growing produce to eat or sell was very small. They seemed so poor and everything seemed to be so challenging that I asked the grandfather whether life was better or worse than it was, say, 20 years earlier. Better, he said, almost without hesitation and, and surprising me. At least, he said, we don't now have people with guns coming to our houses in the night and threatening us. In, in this part of Uganda, security had improved, and this mattered more to him than anything else in his life. In the late 1990s, when I was the BBC South Asia correspondent, I covered what became known as the Cargill conflict. There were 10 weeks of often fierce artillery exchanges in Kargil district along the so-called line of control between Indian-administered and Pakistan-administered Kashmir, and it turned to air, air warfare too. It was the first war involving the two nations, India and Pakistan, that could be seen in real time on television in Indian homes, or at least almost in real time. It coincided with the uh, proliferation of commercial television channels in India, many of which sent reporting teams to the front with some access to satellite or microwave coverage. It felt alarmingly like that 1982 Lebanon experience for me as we all piled into taxis or hired four-wheel drive vehicles in Srinagar or Leh and made our way daily along the exposed road that was quite literally the front line, stopping to do reports and not infrequently having to dive for cover when the shelling started. The new kind of war coverage for India not only meant that viewers could quickly get a fair idea for themselves of the problems India's forces were facing, as well as their successes, but they could also get an idea of how the local population was being affected. The fog of war certainly hung over Kargil quite a bit of the time, as it so often does in any conflict, but the public debate about the conflict was informed in various ways by the coverage too. You may be surprised that it's in turning to the Iraq war that I want to turn more to the reporting of peace initiatives. But I've done quite a few reporting stints in Iraq, and although it's true and inevitable, I think, that much of the coverage was to do with the military activities of the coalition forces or the bombings and other actions of the insurgents, peace efforts of various kinds have also been covered by the mainstream media like ourselves. As for one well-reported event, the abduction and the captivity of Norman Kember and his Christian peacemaker colleagues, that wasn't, of course, publicity of the kind they intended. And their release by British forces, which I covered in Baghdad, uh, prompted, as you remember, further robust debate about the wisdom of their mission to Iraq. But other peace-related stories that I was involved in covering in Iraq, and which spring to mind, include an interfaith initiative launched back in 2000 to provide a forum that could bring together divided religious leaders 
Muslims who would otherwise have no way of meeting because of the circumstances then in Iraq and attempting to reconcile their differences, which certainly risked fueling the conflict. There was also the visit by a Northern Ireland delegation keen to share their experiences of reconciliation. And then there have been the stories of what you might call individual or local community peace initiatives, the people who've tried to stand up to the men of violence and protect a street of homes or a whole neighbourhood. From what I've often seen as a journalist, conflict, peacemaking and peace building uh, do not, of course, divide themselves into separate phases. They often go alongside one another. South Africa, in the death throes of apartheid, with its strong civil society, is certainly an example of that. And indeed, I've come across and reported on South African groups lending their experience in more recent times to Iraq as well. Some of you might know of the imam and the pastor in an area of Nigeria where interreligious violence has been tragically all too common and who once headed rival militia themselves. They decided to stop fighting and to work together to bring an end to the violence. And they've also worked with rival communities in Kenya after the terrible violence there that followed the 2008 election. I, I saw them at work. Now, sadly, there is still work in progress back home in Nigeria. But the more you see uh, conflict at first hand, and in my case, report on it, the more you appreciate, I think, the sustained effort that has to go into building or rebuilding trust and understanding and addressing the causes of the conflict and thus reducing the risk of new flare-ups. Would it help? if news organizations were to focus less on the violence and more on the peacemaking and building? Not necessarily, I think. We surely need to expose conflict and violence as fully as possible, and by that I include instruments of violence such as systematic rape, of course, in order that we better understand the need for peacemaking and the strategies that might best be pursued. Just the same, I would argue, as we need to fully expose the impact of poverty to understand and measure the potential solutions. We should, I'm sure, be more consistent in our reporting of some conflicts, though it's also the reality that news gathering budgets are constrained today, including in the BBC. We know the debt we all owe to courageous local journalists around the world, and these days also to those who use blogs and other form, forms of social media to tell us what's happening in places of conflict and repression. They're increasingly proving to be a very useful starting point for our journalism too, especially where access is most difficult. I know there's an argument that the world has suffered from there being too much war journalism with a bias towards violence, and that to counter it we need more peace journalism with a bias towards peace. That's as may be, but I personally like the definitions of the objectives of journalism that the Observer's foreign editor Peter Beaumont comes up with in his book, The Secret Life of War. He says the role of journalists is to be honest witnesses, describing the small truths about situations they see for themselves that can help inform a wider truth. 
and the photojournalist and documentary maker Tim Hetherington, who was tragically killed in Misrata in Libya just recently, said he believed it was important to convey the emotions surrounding war so that we better understand it. And he did so particularly powerfully, I think, in the documentary film Restrepo about uh, an American outpost, military outpost in Afghanistan. And for me, uh, the last thing it did was to glorify war. Well, so what are some of the questions and challenges I see ahead in the reporting of peacemaking and peace building? Are we giving enough attention to whether the International Criminal Court and the issuing of indictments for war crimes can prolong conflict rather than bring it to a swifter conclusion, however laudable the desire for accountability might be? Do we look into whether cross-border peacemaking can be more effective and necessary than more localised peace initiatives in more complex conflicts where armed groups enjoy sanctuary and even support across borders? First-hand coverage of this can be as challenging as the peacemaking itself. Both of these things, the ICC indictments against Joseph Comey and the cross-border dimension, are very relevant to the continuing conflict involving the Lord's Resistance Army, which started in northern Uganda and has now wreaked havoc much further afield. Are there some conflicts that leave a legacy of trauma so deep that people never get over it. Is Rwanda genocide an example of that in our times? I would suggest yes, from uh, what I saw when I went there just, it was about four months after the uh, end of the genocide, the 100 day slaughter. And I went to a church at uh, Nyarabuye, uh, notorious for the fact that so many people, hundreds and hundreds of people were massacred in the church. Uh, and I was then the BBC's religious affairs correspondent on the trip with the then Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey. And we saw the corpses, this four months on, all lying on the floor of that church in exactly the position that people had been killed. Uh, almost deliberately, I, I suspect, left there as, as a memorial of the horror of it all. I went back there for the 10th anniversary of the genocide and uh, during the course of the day watched uh, an extraordinary reenactment of the atmosphere around those deadly roadblocks where so many people were killed and other aspects of the genocide, a reenactment in a stadium. And I'll never forget, it provoked terrible, guttural shrieks and cries right around the stadium from, from people who come in and were, were in the stands. It was a quite extraordinary experience, as you can imagine. So does peace building itself always recognise, I wonder, the permanent cost of conflict? And do we, in the media, explore such an issue adequately? And in that context, how much do truth and reconciliation commissions really help? We had the one in South Africa, of course. Now, Ivory Coast is planning one too. 
Starting out on my own career in Bush House, the home of the World Service, uh, I can never forget that the BBC's motto is Nation Shall Speak, Peace Unto Nation. A high-minded motto emblazoned across the grand entrance to Bush House, as you, as you probably know. A motto, of course, from a different age and in some ways a very different world. Uh, but obviously, I would suggest just as relevant today. Thank you. Thank you.